Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. And welcome back, everybody, to Hanging with History. That miracle that happened. That one time. This is episode 9, 1066. Legacy of Forkbeard. Canute the Great. 1066. Wow. We differentiated emerging Europe in episode 3 from the ancient world slowly over time, and the rest of the world because of Christianity and its package of monogamy, female consent, and exogamous families. Slow impact, creating greater trust and tolerance that is genuinely different from anything else in the world. There's a Joseph Hendricks slideshow that most uh, anthropologists are reluctant to include because of Anateus and the way ideas and ideologies function with human brains. It's too banal for a scientist to say that love is vital. I say, get love working for you, and you might leave Malthus and his famines and misery in the dust. Since episode three, we've been differentiating Britain from the rest of Europe, and the Vikings were one reason for it. England had the worst case of Vikings in Europe. And there are a lot more reasons. Keep listening. But the Viking arc ends today with Canute the Great. Harald, why do you say Canute? You know it's Knut. You even have several family members named Knut. Hi, Reindeer75. Glad to have you back. It's been a while. I've missed your warm intelligence that hides behind that strong Norwegian voice. Well, same reason I mishmash Vikings, Norse, Scandinavian, and Dane. Even Britain and England sometimes. Oftentimes a word signifies much less than you think. The borders have changed for one thing, and the cultural differences, while small enough now, were probably minuscule then. So, just to put it out there, Knut is spelled K-N-U-T. And in English, where there's a K-N, the K has become silent. So, we tend to spell the king's name C-A-N-U-T-E, and that changes the pronunciation a bit from Knut by adding an extra syllable. Otherwise, in English, it'd be pronounced N-U-T, like nut. And Knut certainly wasn't a nut despite the story of Knut and the waves. Remember a few episodes ago when we talked about the substantial Norse contribution to Middle English and the scholarly disagreements about the extent of it? I looked into the silent K as in knowledge and knee, and the silent G as in sign and benign, and they are still disagreeing. But I have a recommendation this time. LinguistEducatorExchange.com as the superior accessible source. Far deeper than Wikipedia, more accurate than the Oxford English Dictionary, which seems to have a worrying amount of errors, partly because many of the student contributors know only one old language, and the distinction between Norman French and Parisian French is pretty important, but often confuses people in distinguishing between Old English, Norse, and Norman French. Anyway, the silent K and G were pronounced in Middle English right into the 1500s, and then they stopped being pronounced for some reason. There are theories. Uh, the one I like best is that it's easier, faster. I think that's the most attractive idea. 
And this makes sense to me as a poor Norwegian speaker who listens to a lot of Danish. Uh, Written Danish and Norwegian are basically the same, just trivial differences. But spoken Danish goes by twice as fast as Norwegian. Because, well, speaking subjectively for myself now, half the sounds are swallowed instead of being said out loud. We have the saying in Norway, Danish is like Norwegian, except the speaker has a potato in their throat. It's not just us either. There's a whole memeplex around it and hilarious videos out there. I'll link some on the website, or you can go and do it yourself. Back to the History Podcast. Last week we left England in 1013 with a new conqueror. Dead conqueror, Sven Forkbeard. And despite the fact that I said who was king didn't matter, that progress towards the miracle was being built at the lower levels, well, this was really good for England. Politics didn't end, of course, and there are some good stories from this time about Edmund Ironsides. There was war, guerrilla war, burning and murder in the night. Eventually, the Saxons try to fight the Vikings in another straight-up battle. When will they learn? But it doesn't matter to our story. Knut, son of Fortbeard, becomes king of England. He's also king of Denmark, which was a bigger place in those days. Thorkel the Tall comes over to his service now and is made Earl of East Anglia. Knut and his sons rule England until 1042. Lots of land gets shared out to Knut's men, but this land sharing is more spread out and less general than in the first Viking conquest by the sons of Ragnar. They settle down. England is paying a special tax to pay for Knut's fleet and army, and the country is now unified. There are no other kings. The country prospers with new settlements. There's growth in trade and wealth, and there's good documentary evidence for this, actually. No Vikings are raiding because the Vikings are in charge now but they integrate well with a new English nobility. There were still regional differences, and I'm going to mostly ignore those for now. And Vikings weren't over, exactly. Knut's fleet destroyed a large Viking fleet in 1018. And since he was king of Denmark as well, in a letter to the English people sent from Denmark, he claimed to have taken measures to protect England, so long as he remained king. Knut issued law codes, which were a lot like the earlier law codes, which makes it seem like he wasn't changing much. And Knut's eager Christianity made it look like he was conforming. But he wrote a lot of charters as well, and the charters had witness lists from which we can see that the higher classes of England were partially replaced by new men. And Knut did get rid of, often physically get rid of, the corrupt oligarchy around Ethelred. Use your imagination how he might have done that. Much land changed hands. Many had been killed in the wars leading up to Knut's kingship. And the integration cut both ways. We can see evidence of a church in Roskilde, the closest thing to a Danish capital built by English stonemasons in the 1030s. We also know that ecclesiastically the English won out in Scandinavia over their rivals in Bremen, and why two different groups of churchmen should have such a battle, well, I guess the monkeys are in charge. The monkeys are always in charge. 
with English churchmen coming to Scandinavia and Scandinavian ecclesiastics being trained in England. Knut went on a great pilgrimage to Rome, uh, attended the coronation of Holy Roman Emperor Conrad II, and arranged for his daughter to marry Conrad's son when they would come of age. All very good, normal, European royalty stuff. When Knut and his sons died, there was a lot more politics leading up to 1065 when Harold Goodwineson was elected, yes, elected, King of England. You said the name wrong again. Yes, and I'm sure I'll butcher the pronunciation of Wittangamut, where the top Saxon nobles had the right to elect a king. Harold Godwinson, known as Harold II, with one of Knut's sons being Harold I. I like saying good wine instead of Godwin as a kind of three-layer joke. I mean, I love good wine, but Godwin doesn't mean good wine like Ritzloff and Livermore, but God's friend or friend of God. And Puritans don't even exist yet. And English spelling is so varied, you can find good Goodwineson in sources, which is another part of the joke. Anyway, this is all a lead-up to the great year 1066. Some think 1066 was a kind of Annus Horribilis, which smeared away some of the specialness of England into a more general, authoritarian, European goop. And in their histories, William's conquest is kind of a sad event. This was gently mocked in episode 6 with the Jaws theme, but I'm going to say it was both necessary and good for England and English, given a long enough view. More on that later. You'll figure it out. We're talking about Harold II. He ties together some really weird things that happened. In theory, the West Saxon monarchy was elected, though in practice they'd been using primogeniture since Alfred's time. After Knut's sons were kings and then died, they brought Edward the Confessor from exile in Normandy and made him king. Edward was heavily influenced by his early upbringing in Normandy, and he had lots of Norman influence at his court. It was quite resented. So it wasn't an out-of-the-blue thing for William the Bastard to think of ruling England. William the Bastard? Yes, he was the son of the Duke of Normandy and a peasant woman, who was an amazingly perfect physical specimen, and William shared that physical perfection as a young man. His beauty was said to be an important factor in his getting the throne of Normandy, since he was a bastard. So, not a bastard because he was so cruel. He was that too, especially to the Norse nobility in northern England who kept rebelling against him. He was a scorched earth type of guy too. They should call him William the Beautiful. Uh, Maybe. I want to start with Harold, though. But the problem was really Edward. Edward, the confessor, seemed to have promised the throne when he died to at least three people. Harold, William of Normandy, sorry, William the Beautiful, Sven II of Denmark, the great Forkbeard's grandson. Make up your mind, dude. Even though technically it required election... Edward's wishes were important to people, not sure why, but the widespread use of wills among even the lower classes in England is a distinctive, unique feature of life from as early as we have records. Hmm. Hmm. That sounds tautological. Harold was on the spot when Edward died and got the job, but that meant there were other claimants to the throne with pretty strong claims better claims from a royal descent point of view. 
if you care about that. Some people did. Harold was just the big man in England. Earl of East Anglia, Earl of Wessex, defeater of the Welsh. Edward supposedly came out of his coma long enough to ambiguously suggest Harold should protect the kingdom. A bit suspicious. He had no special descent from royalty type of claim. It's hard for us, from this distance, to understand how important that was to the people of England. The divine right of monarchy as a concept may not have been as well developed as it was a few hundred years later. But William the Bastard had a couple of good grounds to claim the throne. Not just Edward's promise, but supposedly Harold's promise to defer to William. Supposedly, William made Harold sit his butt down on several saints' relics and swear to defer to William. In the Middle Ages, they may not have had the word propaganda, but they still had propaganda. And our sources for this kind of stuff are pretty motivated. So, Harold is king, William the Bastard has his claims, and a rocking good army behind him of archers and mounted knights. This is also a large army. Also, an even bigger badass named Harold, or Harald, had claims to the throne through Knut, Harald Hadrada. 1066 is also an awesome year because of this three-way conflict. It's not four-way because William is able to pay off Sven II, call him Forkbeard III, with tons of money later on. Harald Hadrada, or Harold Hardruler, and for my Bulgarian listener, he was also known as Bulgar Burner. Bulgar Burner. How do you get that for a nickname? was a leader in the Vringian Guard in Constantinople, where he got extremely rich on the basis of plunder from the Balkans to Mesopotamia. Also, he was the brother of St. Olav, patron saint of Norway that we've mentioned before, uh, hanging out with Thorka Vatal, Olav Haraldsson. His claim to the Norwegian throne was solid. He then performed a great service for England from 1048 to 1064, he basically invaded Denmark almost every year, and with Norway and Denmark at constant war, neither kingdom could do much in England. Although one of Harald's sons worked with the Welsh invasion in the 1050s. So finally, Harald makes peace with Sven and turns to England. Having made a deal with Tosti, Harold Godwinson's brother, who was until recently Earl of Northumbria. So Harald and Tusty joined forces and looked to repeat Forkbeard's conquest. This is going to be the third Viking conquest of England, and why not? Uh, Harald's first opposition is from the new earls of Northumbria and the Earl of Mercia at Fulford, and Harald crushes them. Then they go to accept the submission of York in probably elaborate ceremony, all according to the established playbook for a Viking conquest of England so far. But Harold Godwinson surprises Harald Hardrada by making a forced march from the south and probably catches Hardrada and part of his army only lightly armed for the ceremony. The Battle of Stamford Bridge is the result. The fully armored part of the Viking army only arrives at the end after Hadrada is already dead. The aftermath is quick. Hadrada's sons are allowed to depart with their ships. 
And Harald Goodwinson's English army hits the road for another forced march south to Hastings to meet William the Bastard. And two of our sources, uh, Snurry, whose sagas you should all read, and Henry of Huntington, tell a cool story from this time. A lone English warrior rides up to the Norse army before the Battle of Stamford Bridge. He approaches Tosti and Hadrada and asks Tosti if he'd like to come back to his brother's side in return for getting Northumbria back. Tosti says, that's a nice offer. But what will he give Hardrada? And the English warrior says, seven feet of good English earth, since he is taller than most. Tosti doesn't think that's a good deal, and the warrior rides away. Hardrada asks Tosti, who was that brave man? willing to ride up to us all alone like that. And Tosti says, that was Harold, my brother. Good story. So the Saxon army that faces William has endured two forced marches, which, if you aren't familiar with long marches before modern times, tended to greatly weaken armies due to the hardships of sleeping out, dysentery from bad water, and desertion. Well-documented cases during the Napoleonic period will have a 120,000-man army march for a season to fight a campaign and only have 60,000 men available for the decisive battle at the end. We don't have anything like good sources for this period, so we can only guess at how much less effective Harold's army was after two long back-to-back marches. In any case... The Normans decisively defeated the Saxons and took over. One consequence was that William now claimed that he personally owned all of England by right of conquest. And we'll leave that there until next week after Conversations with Cammy. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> so, Cami, we're back uh, outside again with the birds singing and some kids playing in the background. And you've just had a chance to hear episode 9, 1066, Legacy of Forkbeard. What thoughts do you have for us? I think I could tease you a little bit. You talked about Harold invading Denmark from 1048 to 1064 pretty much yearly. Yeah. I have to tease you about that because of our our travels to Denmark almost every year. (laughs) So are you the new Harold going to claim Denmark? It's much less violent the second time around. The other thing that, you know, picking up, and and not just this episode, but others, are the fun names. William the Bastard and Forkbeard. William the Beautiful. William the Beautiful, and the names are are so amazingly descriptive rather than just, uh, in this is 10, Sally. In episode 10, William's going to end slavery in England, so that's a, it's a nice step. But yeah, William the Bastard, William the Conqueror, no one I think has called him William the Beautiful except me, Forkbeard, Canute the Great, back in Denmark they called him Canute the Old. Well, I'm had he sure aged why. a great deal by the time he got there? Sometimes... Well, there's speculation that maybe they use uh, spirit world names. 
because otherwise they just don't make sense to us. Well, old could mean different things. It could mean wise. That he's over the age of 25 or 30. I mean, it's, uh, it was a very different time. Yeah. One of the interesting things is that maybe Harold, instead of Harald, maybe he didn't have that good an army, that it was mostly mercenaries, that he didn't have as much support as one would like because maybe the propaganda against him, maybe the omens in the sky, I think there was a comet, hurt his popularity, hurt the uh, amount of belief people had in him. Stories uh, that uh, hint at that. So was astrology a big thing then? I mean, we, we know the Aztecs' astrology was big. Oh, yeah. yeah if a comet went overhead, it was you know considered a tremendous portent. Are you going to be sorry to leave the Vikings behind? Because we're going to move on into the Middle Ages pretty soon and some really surprising, semi-miraculous things that happen in England. So is it really ever possible for you to leave Vikings behind? I mean, we seem to find them everywhere we go. That's a really good question. Yes, it's too bad the Vikings never invaded the United States. You'd really have fun with that. Well, they were the first uh, people from Europe to come to North America. They went to uh, Lonceau-Medeau in the tip of Newfoundland. There is pretty solid archaeological evidence of a Norse settlement there that lasted maybe three years. It's thought that they probably did some sailing further south because they named the place Vinland, which is uh, Vineland, land of vines, specifically referring to grapes. The, the weather was warmer uh, at that time, you know, around the year 1000 than it is now. So we're not quite sure how far north vine grapes would have grown at that time. What's really interesting is this sort of fashion in history where for quite a long time the sagas were held to be very unreliable sources that uh, existed mostly to bolster land claims to various areas. But the guy who found the Lonceo Meadow archaeological site found it by following the sailing directions that were in one of the sagas. Hmm. To do that means that you had to have extremely faithful transmission of the sailing directions through the centuries. And that's, it's kind of an acid test. It's, uh, there you have a thing that is very obviously true. So now I, I think there's, there's a lot more consideration of how accurate the sagas were with many people starting to, I don't know, rehabilitate Snorri's reputation as a historian. So how did this historian document his facts? He was an Icelander who traveled to Norway and first wrote down histories and then uh, kind of got the history bug and started writing uh, a lot of histories. Uh, the Heimskringlaw is one of our uh, primary sources for early Norwegian history, for example. Hmm. His writing style is excellent, so they're, they're very accessible, very easy to read, highly entertaining. What do you think of steak and corn for dinner tonight? Sounds great. That's my plan. Very good. Get cooking. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.